first time. Um, you perhaps heard me allude to it just a second ago. Uh, we're currently working our way through the book of Acts. We're, we're in the final stride here. In fact, I think this is the last of three weeks in this series, and then we'll move on to the next sermon series in the book of Ecclesiastes, which should be really fascinating. If you're not super familiar with the book of Acts, as I've said from week one of this series, this is the story of a band of Christ followers acting as his witnesses, spreading the gospel by land and sea to the farthest reaches of the known world. It's the story of Jesus fulfilling the very promise that he made himself to build his church with the gates of hell powerless to stop it. Um, we come into these last chapters of the book of Acts with, with a bit of a zoom lens, you might say. It's kind of like the story of creation where you been, begin with the cosmos, everything being made in chapter one, and then you zoom in on the garden with man as God's image bearers. Very similarly, the book of Acts, you have kind of this uh, broad brushstroke, this crazy fast-paced story of the gospel moving forth. And then in the last chapters, things zoom in on the life of the apostle Paul as he journeys from the city of Jerusalem, the very city where Jesus was crucified, to the city of Caesarea, and then ultimately to the city of Rome where the book of Acts comes to a close. Paul on trial for his very life in many ways parallel to the last days of Jesus's life in ministry. This morning, we get a front row seat to the final defense that the apostle Paul makes before he, he journeys to the city of Rome. And let me just say this, if you're a fan of heaping words of encouragement, you're gonna love this morning's passage. If you're not a fan of heaping words of encouragement, Ecclesiastes will be here soon enough. That's a joke, by the way, because Ecclesiastes is incredibly encouraging. Just hang in there, dive in with us this summer, and you'll be mind blown by just how encouraging that book of the Bible actually is. Suffice it to say, I have 10 encouraging truths to share with you this morning based on our time together in the book of Acts, these verses alone. But I don't want to get ahead of myself. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Acts chapter 25, verse 13 is where we'll begin this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and utilize it this morning. You can take that Bible with you if you don't have a Bible uh, in your possession or the one you have is difficult to track with in terms of its translation. Um, let me pray for us and, and we'll get to work. God, what a beautiful opportunity particularly and specifically on Mother's Day as we consider this idea of, of what it means to be a child, this idea of what it means to be a son or a, or a daughter and what it is to parent, to think a, about the beautiful truth and reality that you are a loving father who through Christ has uh, rescued a people for yourself whom you declare to be sons and daughters. And the beauty of that reconciled relationship to our Father has so many glorious benefits that we're going to see this morning. I pray that we would walk away on this Mother's Day and that we would be uh, all the more encouraged and comforted um, because of who you are and what you've accomplished for us in Jesus Christ, that we would be mind blown by what it means to be a son or a daughter of our Father who art in heaven. Holy Spirit, would you make these truths real to us in our hearts? I pray that we would not walk away with 10 encouraging truths that just uh, become 10 theological bullet points, but rather that our theology would lead to doxology this morning, that we couldn't help but walk out of here praising you and thanking you for all that you've done for us in Jesus Christ. Spirit of God, would you open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts to, 
to see, to hear, and receive all that you have for us by your grace. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So picking up where we left off last week, Paul has been imprisoned in the city of Caesarea for roughly two years, though it only is a couple of verses that make clear that two years have passed by. Having been accused by the Jewish leaders of threatening peace, of blasphemy, of desecrating the temple of God, his chances of survival, to go back to last week, a quote from John Stott, his chances of survival, that of a butterfly before a steamroller. Not looking great for the apostle Paul here in this moment. Yet he's still standing because his life is in the hands of a sovereign, powerful, almighty God, just like our lives are in the hands of a sovereign, powerful, almighty God. God's not finished with Paul just yet. He has plans for Paul to testify of the crucified and risen Jesus uh, of Nazareth in the city of Rome, and Paul hasn't quite made it to Rome. Though he's well on his way, having escaped an assassination plot at the hands of the chief priests and Jewish leaders by appealing his case to Caesar in the city of Rome. The only problem, and we'll see this as we pick up in this morning's passage, the only problem is that in order to send Paul to Rome, Festus, the presiding governor of Caesarea, must list out the charges against the Apostle Paul, which normally wouldn't be a problem, except for the fact that the Apostle Paul is innocent on every account, as we've seen over and over again through these last chapters. As you pick up the story here in Acts chapter 25, verse 13, it says this, Now when some days had passed, Agrippa, the king, and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met their accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. Okay, right out of the gate, we have a couple of new characters showing up this week, right? Some things that are helpful to know about King Agrippa and Bernice. King Agrippa was the son of Herod Agrippa, the one who had James, son of Zebedee, executed back in chapter 12. He was the one who had Peter imprisoned in that very same chapter. He was the one who, if you don't remember him based on those events, he was the one who was eaten by worms as a divine consequence of his glory thieving. Apparently, after the worm-eating episode in chapter 12, the King Agrippa, spoken of here, took over his father's throne. Bernice, we're, we're told, according to historical records, was his half-sister and traveling buddy with whom many Roman historians write that he had an incestuous relationship. Like, talk about a bucket of yuck, right? Like, how, how depraved of a person was Bernice, you might ask? Well, when she later became the Emperor Titus's mistress... As if that weren't enough, she had to be sent away from Rome because, get this, pagan Rome was concerned about her level of immorality. Like, when prostitutes and junkies look upon you with disdain, you got real issues of morality, right? Agrippa and Bernice are in town for a visit, these two, which presents Festus with an opportunity to, to get a little bit of clarity as to, to what to do with the Apostle Paul. The last thing that Festus wants to do is send Paul to the emperor in the city of Rome without any sort of valid reason. That would, that would cause him to come across as inept, potentially cost him his position of authority. And so Festus fills Agrippa in on the transpiring events of the last couple chapters, the past two years, including the former governor Felix having put Paul in prison, having passed him on to Festus 
in the change of leadership, as well as the court proceedings that have taken place up to this point in the story, which he goes on to explain in the next few verses. Verse 17, picking up, it says, So when they came together here, I made no delay. This is Festus speaking. But on the next day, I took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man Paul to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, Caesar, I ordered him to be held until I could send him there. So Festus makes the point that Paul has broken no Roman laws, that this essentially boils down to a religious dispute, specifically a dispute about the the death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, which Festus, a pagan Gentile, has no category for. He's at odds with what to do with the apostle Paul, which helps to make sense of why he would happily welcome King Agrippa, a Jewish man, into the conversation, so that we're told in verse 22... Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said Festus, you you will hear him. So now, don't miss this in the broader storyline of Acts. Now the stage is set for Paul to stand before kings, which Jesus himself had promised would come to pass. Remember Acts chapter 19, the first telling of the apostle Paul's conversion story. Jesus says, he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Up to this point, Paul has shared the gospel with Gentiles and with Jewish people, but he hasn't shared the gospel with kings. All of that's about to change. Once again, reminding us that God is a promise keeper, which is such an encouragement when we consider all the promises found in scripture. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But let's keep plowing away through this story. Verse 23 Says, so on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. I don't know what image comes to mind for you when you think about this moment in the book of Acts. This week, when I thought about this, I, I pictured a homeless man stumbling into Westminster Abbey during the wedding of William and Kate. Are you, You talk about an extremely intimidating environment. The Apostle Paul, clearly the lowest person on the food chain at this point in the story of Acts. So that we're told in verse 24, Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor... I decided to go ahead and send him, but I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I brought him before you all and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Like, biggest duh in the book of Acts, right? So so again, the, the goal to get some clarity here as to what the charges should actually B, being that Paul's broken no Roman laws, it's mind-boggling. He's a prisoner in light of that. Festus needs some sort of clarity on the matter so that he has something to include in his letter to the emperor to whom Paul's now made his appeal. Verse 1 tells us, So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. 
All right, let me just stop for a second. Put yourself in Paul's shoes. Put yourself in the shoes of the homeless man having stumbled his way into Westminster Abbey. Make sharing the gospel with an unbelieving coworker or neighbor seem pretty non-threatening by comparison, doesn't it? Paul has every reason, according to the world's standards, to, to clam up, to curl up in the fetal position in a spirit of fear. The bound criminal standing before the king in all of his pomp and circumstances. Circumstance, it's not plural. And yet, and yet we're told, finishing out verse 1 of chapter 26, then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. He said, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Paul brings into the forefront of the conversation Agrippa's familiarity with the controversies of the Jews, meaning the controversy between Jews and Christians. Don't miss this. This is incredibly bold, though maybe a little subversive on the part of the Apostle Paul, when you think about where Agrippa's familiarity comes from. Right? We just talked about it a moment ago. Think about the brutal treatment of Christians represented by Agrippa's family tree and lineage. His great-grandfather was the one who ordered the slaughter of innocent children around the time of Jesus' birth. His great-uncle was the one responsible for the beheading of John the Baptist. His father was the one who had James, the brother of John, executed back in chapter 12. His father also had Peter arrested and, and would have had him executed too, if not for an angelic prison break, if you go back and read that chapter of Acts. Like, this is a bold move on the part of the Apostle Paul. Though he doesn't say it explicitly, it doesn't take a strong imagination to connect the dots. Your great-grandfather, Agrippa, tried to kill baby Jesus. That's a problem. Your great-uncle killed the one whom God had established in the Old Testament as the forerunner of Jesus. Your dad killed one of Jesus' original 12 disciples. There's some controversy there, right? Empowered by the Spirit of God, Paul doesn't allow the pomp and circumstance to cripple him with fear. The gospel creates a confident humility in the Apostle Paul, a humble boldness. That's what the gospel does. Verse 4 goes on to say, Paul continuing to speak, my manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to obtain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Hey, this is not the first time we've seen Paul make this kind of argument in the book of Acts, appealing to the prophets and the Psalms to show that the Old Testament hope of resurrection finds its ultimate fulfillment in the resurrected Jesus of Nazareth. Paul has a hope, as do his Jewish brothers and sisters. The difference is that Paul's hope is in this Jesus as the crucified and risen Savior, the fulfillment of all of the messianic promises of the Old Testament. Going back to last week, what the Jews considered a sect was actually the fulfillment of what the Old Testament had been looking forward to all along. Going all the way back to the very first promise of the gospel in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The rescuer who would come to crush the serpent Satan's head. Declared by the Apostle Paul to be fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth. By believing in 
the resurrected Jesus, we share in his resurrection, having a certain hope for eternity, which impacts our lives in the present. You can go back and listen to the last several Easter sermons and connect some of those dots in terms of the application of what that actually means. Verse nine, Paul goes on to say, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul once again tells of his former persecution of Christians going even further than in previous accounts where we've seen this in the book of Acts. Here he tells us for the first time that he voted. Like he actually cast a vote, a ballot, for the execution of men like Stephen. He didn't just hold other men's coats for them as they threw rocks. He formally signed off on the deaths of those who would eventually be his brothers and sisters in Christ. Hey, think about that for a second. You think you're a great sinner? The saving work of Jesus Christ in the life of the Apostle Paul is a declaration that Jesus is a greater Savior. Here Paul also declares that he tried to make Christians blaspheme, which now having been converted is Paul's way of saying that to not trace the fulfillment of the promises of old to Jesus of Nazareth is to blaspheme the one true God. That's strong. Again, spirit-empowered, confident humility, bold humbleness. And now he goes on to tell us of his Damascus Road conversion experience. This is the third time we see this in the book of Acts. But again, notice some of the, the new details for those of you who have been around for the entirety of this series or who are familiar with the, the various accounts of Paul's conversion story. Look here in verse 12 of 26. It says, Paul says, In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to anoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. A few details that we don't get elsewhere in the book of Acts regarding the conversion story of the Apostle Paul. This is the first time that we're told that Jesus speaks to Paul in Hebrew, in a language that Paul can understand. That's the mercy and kindness of God in humble condescension. Same kind of theology you see in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, what we celebrate every Christmas. And yet we also see the perfect sovereignty of God in Paul's inability to continue to kick against the goads Goads were sharp sticks used to prod oxen, used to keep them in lines in moments of keep them in line in moments of greatest resistance. Jesus is basically saying, You can't resist the will of God. When I say no more, you're mine, guess what? You're mine. Right, verse 18 tells us 
been going on, something of what it is to be his. Such encouraging things, and we'll come back and unpack them in just a moment in a little bit greater detail. That salvation is an opening of the eyes from blindness to sight. Salvation is a turning from darkness to light, from a stumbling in the dark to walking in illumination. Salvation is a turning from the power of Satan to the power of God, a being set free from the dominion of and bondage to the devil. Salvation is a receiving forgiveness of sin so that we're no longer under the weight of guilt, of condemnation, of shame. Salvation is a receiving a place among the saints, an eternal home in the presence of the eternal king. You might ask, if you're not familiar with Christian worldview, like how do, you, how do we obtain those kind of blessings? And Jesus says as much in verse 18, by faith in me. It's by placing our faith, just like the apostle Paul and the crucified and risen Jesus of Nazareth, the one true savior and king. J.C. Ryle in a book I've recently been reading entitled The Gospel is Center, he says, faith brings with it nothing to Christ but a sinful man's soul. It gives nothing contributes nothing, pays nothing, performs nothing. It only receives, takes, accepts, grasps, and embraces the glorious gift of justification which Christ bestows. So that, and I love this, no one, no one will ever be able to beat their chest about having made it to heaven on the basis of their own merits. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ alone. So that to use the language of verse 18, to think about it in a contrasting sense, to fail to trust in this Jesus is to live in blindness, the Bible says. To fail to trust in this Jesus is to live in darkness. To fail to trust in this Jesus is to live in bondage to the powers of evil. To fail to trust in this Jesus is to live unforgiven in our sins. To fail to trust in this Jesus is to live without a place among the saints apart from the presence of this Jesus. So that if you're not a Christian, you come in this morning, my prayer for you is that you would hear Jesus say to you this morning, just like the Apostle Paul, you can't kick against the goads forever. I'm coming after you. That you would see the hope for ruined sinners in the face of Jesus Christ, and that you would come to him, a ruined sinner, with outstretched hands, empty hands of faith, declaring him to be your savior and king, just like the Apostle Paul. Coming back to this morning's passage, Paul's speech, his defense, he continues by saying, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. And for this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying to both small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that this Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Paul says, I was obedient to Jesus. I proclaimed the gospel in every place to every people to whom Jesus appointed me to be a witness in Damascus, Jerusalem, all of Judea, also to the Gentiles. I've said nothing but what Moses and the prophets were already saying, that the Messiah must suffer, die, and rise from the dead. His death and resurrection, the hope of salvation to both Jew and Gentile. I've had a collision with this 
crucified and risen Messiah. And his name is Jesus, and I can't stop talking about him. That's why I'm in chains this very day. Again, boldness and yet humility. Verse 24 tells us, And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, because Paul never finishes what he's saying before somebody interrupts him in the book of Acts. Festus says, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. Christianity didn't happen in a dark corner somewhere. It was there for all to see. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets, Paul asked. I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I don't care how long it takes. I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. This is a, this is a perfect example of what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, where yeah, the famous words, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews like King Agrippa and folly to Gentiles like the governor Festus. Paul says, I'm not out of my mind. I'm speaking true words. I'm speaking rational words. The word translated rational in the Greek is, is the Greek word sophrosyne. It can be translated of sound mind or sober-minded. Paul essentially argues that Think about this, supernaturalism, he's talking about resurrection from the dead, supernaturalism and rational thinking are one and the same. They actually go together quite well. <laughs> that it's of sound mind to believe that Jesus of Nazareth supernaturally rose from the dead. It's an incredibly rational thing to believe. R.C. Sproul uh, once said this, there are people who think that to become a Christian, one must leave one's brain somewhere in the parking lot. The only leap that the New Testament calls us to make is not into the darkness, but out of the darkness into the light, into that which we can indeed understand. That is not to say that everything the Christian faith speaks of is manifestly clear with respect to rational categories. I can't understand, for example, how a person can have a divine nature and a human nature at the same time, which is what we believe about Jesus. That's a mystery. But mysterious is not the same as irrational. He goes on to say, Mystery doesn't only apply to religion. I don't understand the ultimate force of gravity, he says. These things are mysterious to us, but they're not irrational. It's one thing to say, I don't understand from my finite mind how these things work out. It's another thing to say, they're blatantly contradictory and irrational, but I'm gonna believe them anyway. That's not what Christianity does, he says. Christianity says that there are mysteries, but those mysteries cannot be articulated in terms of the irrational. If that were so, then we have moved away from Christian truth. Hey, to my brothers and sisters in Christ in this room, be incredibly encouraged by the words of the Apostle Paul here. That believing in the crucified and risen Jesus of Nazareth is an exercise in rational thinking. It's to believe the truest and most rational of fairy tales. Paul's so caught up in the wonder of it that he wants... Everyone he encounters to believe it for themselves, to get caught up in the wonder of it, of it all for themselves. 
So that he says, whether short or long, I don't care how long it takes. I would to God that not only you, King Agrippa, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Paul says, believing in the truest and most rational of fairy tales has changed my life forever. I'll never be the same. To that, verse 30, we're told, the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Again, Agrippa confirms that Paul's innocent of all charges, yet he must stand before Caesar because of his appeal, which sets the stage for Paul's journey to Rome. The final chapters of this epic adventure known as the book of Acts. We'll look at those over the course of the next couple weeks. But... Let me, let me just stop for a second, and let me ask a question. Are you encouraged at this point, this morning? I mentioned in the introduction to this morning's sermon that I, I had 10 encouraging truths to share with you based on our time together in the book of Acts this morning. And at this point, you've actually, whether you realize it or not, you've heard all 10. Though perhaps the spread out nature of those truths didn't quite have the heaping effect. And so what I'd like to do is, is to close this morning by bringing all 10 before us in rapid fire succession so that we might walk away overwhelmed with the goodness and grace of God. So that for those who are in Christ, here we go. Number one, we worship a promise keeping God. Chapter 26, verse one, Jesus said that Paul would stand before royalty back in Acts chapter nine. And here before King Agrippa, we see Jesus make good on that promise. We talked about this at Easter Hey, have you ever clung to a promise of God found in Scripture? And the church said, amen, right? Romans 8, God's promise to work all things for good for those who love him. He, uh, Philippians 1, God's promise to complete the good work that he began in us. Hebrews 13, the promise that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Because the promises of God are trustworthy, we have hope in the midst of our personal battles and our communal battles with sin and unbelief. That God is committed to fulfilling his promises and accomplishing his purposes for his glory and for our eternal joy and good. I got nine more. Number two, Jesus is a greater savior than we are great sinners. Chapter 26, verse 10. As a former persecutor of Christianity, Paul cast his vote to have God's beloved sons and daughters viciously murdered. Paul's story is a sure testimony that the blood of Christ is sufficient to cover all of our sins. That's why we call it amazing grace, right? No one's ever written a song called amazing wrath or amazing justice because that makes sense to us in light of our rebellion. But God's grace, it's overwhelming. It's amazing that Jesus Christ can make the greatest treasure out of the greatest wretch. Which is why the Apostle Paul is so adamant about sharing the gospel with King Agrippa and Bernice. In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Yep, even you, King Agrippa, even your dirty, nasty family lineage, even you, Bernice, and your incestuousness. Can't even make it in pagan Rome. Yep, I want you to meet Jesus too, because I think his blood can cover your sins just as much as anybody else. Number three, we serve a king of sovereign might and humble condescension. Chapter 26, verse 14. In the very same verse, you see the goads of God's sovereignty and his willingness to stoop in speaking to Paul in Hebrew. How incredible is that? Tim Keller 
It says, in Jesus Christ, we see the combination of infinite power and complete vulnerability, unbounded justice and yet unending mercy, transcendent highness and exquisite accessibility and nearness. We feel in the present something completely wild and unpredictable. It's mighty, it's powerful, and yet perfectly under control. The attraction is deep, he says. It is really, really deep. It's a lordliness. It is a royalty. It's a kingliness that we all long to have. But the majesty, he says, is more majestic for the tenderness. The tenderness, more tender for the majesty. If you don't know, if, if reading the Bible doesn't make any sense of that for you, go read the Chronicles of Narnia and encounter Aslan, and you'll see it in, in beauty. As Jonathan Edwards once put it, in Jesus there is an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies, that of infinite justice and infinite grace, that of infinite glory and infinite humility, that of infinite majesty and infinite meekness. That's your king, church, and we are his people. Number four, we've been given eyes to see and savor this glorious savior and king. Like salvation is an opening of the eyes, if our eyes are blinded, we don't see that, that excellent diversity. Like, like the blind man that God gave back his sight, praise the Lord that you saw the light. That's, that's the beauty of the gospel, that we've gone from blind, disheveled, impoverished outcasts groping in the dark for something to hope in to children of God with eyes to see and savor the glory of Jesus Christ. That Jesus has made a way for the blind to see and savor him forever. It's a miracle. Number five. We have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Again, chapter 26, verse 18. Salvation is a turning from darkness to light, a turning from stumbling in the dark to walking in illumination. And that rescue from darkness to light has more to do than, than with just our conversion, that where there was once a, a darkened heart and mind, darkened by sin, there's now the hope of transformation and renewal, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. That Jesus took our darkness upon him at Golgotha and he conquered it in triumphant resurrection. And because of what Jesus has accomplished through the cross and empty tomb, we can now know the miracle of illumination. Number six, we've been delivered from the power of Satan to the kingdom of God's beloved son. That salvation, chapter 26, verse 18, is also a turning from the devil to God, a being set free from the, the dominion of and bondage to Satan himself, that Jesus, you could say, and I've said this before, he's the greatest dragon slayer the world has ever known. The one who delivered the death blow to the serpent of hell. He's our victory over the powers of evil, over Satan and his demon army. Jesus himself said it, all authority has been given to me. Number seven, we've received forgiveness of sins. Again, chapter 26, verse 18. Salvation is a receiving of the forgiveness of sin so that we're no longer guilty and condemned in the eyes of God. Such a famous passage, Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Having forgiven us all our trespasses. All by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. A Christian, not only are you forgiven because he was forsaken, as we sing often around here, but when God thinks of you, he thinks of you as possessing the righteousness of his son. That's amazing. Number eight, 
We have a place among the saints in the everlasting presence of the king. Again, verse 18. That salvation is receiving a place among God's people, an eternal home in the presence of the eternally glorious God. John Newton once wrote in an old hymn, and prisons would palaces prove if Jesus would dwell with me there. Doesn't our heart need to grab hold of that when times get hard? And prisons would palaces prove if Jesus would dwell with me there. You can just imagine those words rolling off the lips of the apostle Paul. The presence of Jesus can turn a prison into a palace. The gospel, here's really good news. The gospel declares that we get both. We get the king and the palace, church. God's people inhabiting God's eternal city, the new Jerusalem, which shines with his glory and splendor. So that there's no need for sun, moon, or stars because Jesus is going to light up the whole place like the 4th of July. Eternal, uninterrupted communion with God. Never a terrible quiet time again. Right? Nothing to ever get in the way of an intimate relationship between us and him. He will be our forever God and we will be his forever people. Number nine. We believe in the truest and most rational fairy tale the world has ever known. Chapter 26, verse 25. That you and I, we're part of a real life fairy tale. An epic adventure, a rescue story for the ages. The likes of which the greatest fiction writer couldn't have possibly put pen to paper and written. God's a better author than anyone. It's a story bigger than the cosmos. It's a story bigger than time itself. Complete with a, a damsel in distress, a vicious dragon, and a dragon slaying king. Got all the components necessary, right? It's the kind of king who will wipe away sadness forever and establish the most glorious happily ever after the world has ever known. Which brings me to number 10. We have a part to play leading up to that day. Number 10, the Holy Spirit is happy to embolden us to tell this great story of redemption. Chapter 26, verse 26. It's, it's a story that it must be told. It's a story too incredible and wondrous not to share which is why the Apostle Paul can't seem to stop telling it everywhere he goes. And not only is he, he compelled, he's empowered. The, the great story of redemption in Christ, it's a story that the Holy Spirit is happy to embolden God's people to share. One of the great themes of the book of Acts, right? And, and just to put it in perspective, I mentioned this earlier, or at least alluded to it. If the Holy Spirit could give Paul the words to testify before corrupt kings and governors... He absolutely, absolutely can give us the words and the boldness to testify before our coworkers and neighbors and friends and family. That if the Holy Spirit could give Paul the courage to risk his life, he absolutely can give us the courage to risk our reputation or our comfort. That the same Spirit who empowered the Lord Jesus Christ himself indwells you, Christian. The same, the same Spirit who descended at Pentecost, indwells you. You're not alone. The Holy Spirit has taken up permanent residency within you. He's not renting space. He's a homeowner. So that we're invited to walk in the humble boldness that he supplies and go and tell people the truest and most rational fairy tale the world has ever known with Jesus, the great dragon slayer, as the hero of all of it.